Hi, I'm Ryan McGranigan, an aerospace engineer, data scientist, and all-around art, design, engineering, and science enthusiast. And you're listening to Origins, the show where we talk with thought leaders across eclectic areas of society about their origin stories and trajectories. The purpose is to highlight these thought leaders across different landscapes, to learn about the pivotal moments in their lives and to illustrate the ways of living that help you actionably re-examine your own assumptions and patterns. To provide ideas and stories to give you pause, bring you excitement, and be origins of new trajectories. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining another episode of Origins, where we examine the pivotal moments of thought leaders across society. Before we dig in uh, into our fulfilling conversation with Chris Matman, NASA data scientist and general technology guru, just a couple of quick notes. First, my apologies for some audio issues in this episode. Chris and I's connection experienced a few issues and a few areas may be difficult to discern. I provided very extensive show notes with their corresponding times in the recording that will help you find and learn about anything that is difficult to hear, and I'm going to work hard to get a full episode transcript ready for you. Second, this episode takes just a bit to take off. We get into some technical details, but Chris and I get to very actionable and impactful lessons, and there's a lot of meaning in this conversation. Chris talks much about search, specifically what it means in technology. Think about a web search engine. But it resonates with something that I've been fascinated by and thinking deeply about lately. And that is how the mind is a lens through which each of us sees or searches the world. And however one designs that lens is responsible for how one perceives and interacts with the world. For instance, if I wake up and decide that I'm going to have the most incredible day, then I'm more likely to see the positive sides of things, and that happened to me. And perhaps even to precipitate positive outcomes through how I choose to interact with the world that day. So I want to help you design your lens for this episode, so that you can get as much from the genius of Chris that I have over the past few years. Listen to this episode thinking about how it may be the little things that make all of the difference, about drawing parallels between what you're thinking about and what you work on in the areas that seem unrelated. About the idea of lifelong learning and that what you need to learn may not always be apparent or clear and to be experimental and empirical about exploring the world. These are all ideas that are embedded into Chris and I's conversation and I hope you really enjoy it. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Chris Mattman. Chris Matman wears a dizzying number of hats, from principal data scientist, the first ever, at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, to a professor at the University of Southern California and director of the Information Retrieval and Data Science Group there, to a board member, treasurer, and active contributor to the pioneering open source community, Apache. Chances are, if there's something going on in the tech community, Chris is somehow involved. At NASA, he applies these skills and his unique ability to see what's coming next 
to infuse the technologies that NASA needs to push the frontiers of humanity. Chris is a true visionary and pioneer. To me, Chris has been a profound mentor and a friend. During the two wonderful years that I was able to spend at JPL, Chris consistently exposed me to the new and the novel, giving me a glimpse into his unique way of seeing the world. Every time he and I talk, I come away completely saturated with ideas, bursting with energy, and in awe of his insight. It is my distinct pleasure to welcome Chris to Origins. Thank you for joining us, Chris. Thanks for having me, Ryan. I'm happy to be here. Now, I read, and you can correct, correct this if this isn't true, but is it true you take a yearly trip to Hawaii? I do. Let's see. The joke that I make with everybody, uh, you know, i got three kids. Uh, you know, we're just talking about it offline. And, um, you know, my son, the oldest one, Christian, is uh, almost 10. And the thing I can say about them is they all have been to Hawaii 10 times before he's 10. <laughs> So, so where did this trip come from? What, where did it start? You know, uh, a long time ago, one of the first trips my wife and I took uh, when we were boyfriend and girlfriend and just meeting each other was to Hawaii, it was to Maui. And uh, that was actually kind of coincided with really my first real vacation uh, after finishing school, uh, undergraduate at SC. And so uh, we went to Hawaii and Maui. It was just beautiful. And we've, you know, always wanted to go back. And uh, in, I think, 2008, we went back. The trip to Hawaii the first time was 2001. And then around 2008, we went back. I think we went to the same island. We stayed with more members. of. Uh, and then after that, my wife and I decided that we loved it so much that it's a place we want to visit a lot. That's fantastic. So that's a good tradition. Get away every summer. Is that coming up soon? Yeah, yeah, mid-May. Yeah, we're all looking forward to it. It's really relaxing. It's really our family vacation for the year. That's great. I hope you enjoy it, Chris. So it, it kind of it kind of uh, leads in nicely to something that I wanted to talk with you about. Anyone who who knows you or even takes a, a glance at your resume kind of sees this web of activities. Uh, You're involved at JPL, you're involved at a number of different universities, including as a professor at the University of Southern California. Um, You're involved with these open source software companies and and movements. And you have all these simultaneous activities going on that seem like this enormous juggling act. And I'm really curious to know how you manage that and how you, you manage to stay fresh amidst so many different responsibilities and roles and hats that you wear yeah i wonder that myself sometimes actually <laughs> um but uh yeah i mean at least at least for me like the trick for me it's not it's not a big secret it's um it's all gotta relate to one another like you said you know the web that you're talking about analogy has a <clears throat> has like a, a center or a nexus you know at some point and and it's all it's all connected in a way and so for me like you know, it all started out, it really all started out as a student at USC and then early on undergraduate and getting a job at JPL and studying computer science and then uh, 
getting a job with these sort of earth scientists and, you know, physical life, natural sciences at GPL, and then seeing like what they needed. But then also learning at, at SCE, so being aware of, okay, what was out there. And SC is a systems perspective school. I chose the systems track. And so you have this track, which is really teaching you how to architect big systems and giving you all the kind of practical knowledge and, you know, about that. And when you say architect, you mean putting together kind of this, this set of software. Um, is, is that right? Absolutely. It's yeah. deciding how to design the software for, you know, big systems. And big is, yeah, what does big mean? Big can mean um, with, you know, hundreds of thousands of lines of software code and, and that level of systems. Big could also mean in just the number of different pieces or components that it's putting together, even if they're all small. So having a complex architecture versus, you know, many, many lines of code with a simple architecture. Big could also mean widely networked or highly networked, you know, or disjoint or, you know, crossing organizations and things like that. Can you give an example of how people, you know, something relatable that people interact with as a big system, that like what you're describing every, every day? Right. So, you know, some of the classes that I was taking, taking at USC at the time, eventually, you know, I got to a class on search engines. And uh, uh, that class was all about not how to use a search engine, but how to build one. And uh, this was a class I took in 2005. And at the time, search engines were kind of growing from indexing hundreds of millions of web pages to billions. And so, you know, the largest search index indexes at the time were uh, Google and Yahoo and AltaVista, and uh, they were in the billions. They're about four billion web pages. And um, wow, just to make so you know the software and the system to do that, you know, as an example of the systems, like the back end to scale to that required a big distributed system. The architecture of a search engine or search system. Um, is pretty, it's not a super complex architecture, but when you start to talk about the scale at that level, you know, suddenly the index, indexer operation becomes something that you wouldn't run on one machine. You have to run it on a large cluster because dealing with Which the scale is of the internet. Hundreds of, of, of computers, I guess for the, for the less technical listeners, a, a cluster is just a, a collection of computers. So think of a, a bunch of different servers, laptops in, uh, in together. Exactly, exactly right. And what's fascinating uh, is that these systems exist kind of ubiquitously across society, um, and and they're kind of underlaying a lot of the things that we do every day. Is that that right? Absolutely, absolutely. And so um, given, you know, so going back to your your question, you know, it's like, uh, give an example, you know, these types of systems at USC, like I was just, you know, as a graduate student taking classes and that I got really interested in it. And I saw all places, all sorts of places at JPL, both in kind of the construction of those types of systems, like what was involved, you know, uh, analogous sort of use cases, you know, for instead of searching for content on the web, people were searching for science data or Hmm. things like that. And then similarities in size and scale. Uh, 2005, at least in the earth science realm, was a big shift in us uh, at JPL and NASA uh, in terms of some of our earth science capabilities. Uh, we, 
you know, went from having missions like uh, uh, Quick Scat, which was a scatterometer, uh, looking at, um, uh, you know, everything from, you know, Doppler shift to, to winds and other things with an Earth Science Monitoring uh, instrument. We're at the end of its, uh, you know, a lifetime. It collected, you know, 10, 10 years. It collected 10 gigabytes of data. Uh, and, you know, the, the data processing system for QuickScat ran tens of jobs per day. To, uh, in 2005, uh, us starting a new project, OCO, the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, whose requirements were to run tens of thousands of jobs per day. Um, and OCO was a big carbon monitoring satellite. It was going to be the first uh, real U.S. capability to kind of globally monitor, uh, I'm sorry, uh, to globally measure carbon um, and its, its contribution to, you know, all sorts of things, uh, you know, greenhouse gases and uh, global warming and other things. And, uh, yeah, so the scale of OCO just shattered, I mean, tens of, tens of jobs per day to tens of thousands of jobs per day. And then, in terms of the data, not 10 gigabytes at the end of 10 years, 150 terabytes in the first three months. So, and so like... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I just wanted to, to kind of put that in context. That's, you know, th- we're seeing this expansion across every industry and specifically in all areas of science. And in basically for the SCAT mission that you mentioned, and we'll put a link to that in the show notes if people want to look closer, um, we're talking about a few CDs worth of data. But if you look at something like the Orbiting Carbon Observatory, this OCO mission that you mentioned, we're talking about stadiums full of CDs. And so how do you know, we have to develop capabilities to look at the data that we can no longer look at by hand. Uh, and so, so that, that's one of the, that's where you've been kind of a pioneer in, in developing systems that search through those data for the most useful pieces of information. Is, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, and this is going to tie together back to your, your question, Ryan, you know, at the beginning, which is how do you relate all this stuff? And then my, you know, overarching answer, which is, or how do you just manage all of these things at places you pop up? And my answer is it's all got to relate. Well, here's the relationship. What I saw directly at the time in 2005, as I was studying at SC and working at JPL, was, um, and taking the search engines class and seeing the way they built things, um, and what we were doing at JPL is that all of the software and all of the momentum and all of the work that was going on, uh, you know, in that realm and, and, you know, the early stages of some of the big data stuff was all open source things. There was a project called Nutch that just made its way into the Apache Software Foundation from SourceForge. It was led by a guy, Doug Cutting. And, and Chris, uh, I, I don't mean to interrupt, but uh, maybe what is, what is open source? Sure. So, um, Open, open source is a licensing mechanism um, to make software source code, the, the lines of code or the instructions to the machine for what to do, um, available. And normally, and to make it available and to define the way that people use that open source code, either in their own software downstream, in a commercial product, um, in government software, in all sorts of different places in the supply chain. And so why does open source, you know, why does that matter? Is that, you know, normally companies, if they build something cool for many, many years, 
uh, you know, prior to this, sort of this open source movement that was really kind of in the thick of it in the mid 2000s, um, he built something cool, he built some cool software, you know, you would never show anybody what the code looked like, you know, for that. Like my because you, you don't want them to to steal that code and, and, and steal your capability. Is that right? Is that the, was that the fear? Yeah, exactly. It's intellectual property and, and things like that. And so the notion behind open source was that you could actually make the code better by sharing it. Um, you know, and that there was generality and, you know, there were just these sort of fundamental building blocks that it made more sense to share than to have everybody sort of vertically individually and then try and expose them through what they call interfaces or things like that that didn't always work. So yeah, so open source was this sort of movement that kind of grew to say, look, you know, if we share it, uh, we're giving something up a little bit, but the thing that we get in return is just, you know, the ingenuity of people that don't even work for us. Um, you know, the ability for them to peer review the code or find flaws or even security problems with it. And Im- you know, improve it, yeah. Yeah, you know, and things like that. So, so yeah, that's, and so open source also defines sort of, you know, there's many open source licenses which define the mechanism or the regime by which, you know, you do that sharing or whether or not if you share, you require someone to attribute you or, you know, acknowledge you. Well, so I, I'm really fascinated by this because we experienced a shift where there was everyone making proprietary code, you know, keeping their code private. And then there was this evolution of moving towards everything being open and freely available and and building it as a community, which is this really inclusive idea. And, you know, one of the things I I think is so amazing about you is, is that you are able to see these trends maybe better than anyone I know and I'm wondering, at that time, did you see open source as a future? Was that, you know, how did you recognize that trend? And, and is, is, that, is there kind of a, a formula that you use to recognize those trends? At the time, I recognized the trend. The search engine projects is a great example of it. I mean, uh, basically, you know, to see this open product, uh, Nudge, that Doug had and other people worked on it as well. There are other contributors, but a very small group of people, they had built something that almost could compete at the scale with these major search engines companies that had of course invested comparatively hundreds to thousands times more, you know, in very similar products. And so for me, like looking at that and seeing that it can scale to hundreds of millions of web pages, not billions yet, but to see all that, and to see the way in which they were building it to be involved, like you talked about, right, in the inclusivity, you know, to be a part of, a, you know, somebody working on a feature for that. And I actually got involved through USC and through my professor, Alice Horwitz at the time, who was who basically just said, hey, your final project in, in, you know, this class of 30 kids learning about search engines is make a contribution back to Nudge. Oh, cool. Do something for Nudge. And not... Not everyone was able to do that, but, you know, I took that as a challenge. And so I, I, at the time, there were these RSS, really simple syndication news feeds. And I found out that much, they didn't have a, a, a parser or a way to extract out the text and the information from RSS uh, back then in Nutch. 
uh, every time you know in that search engine's architecture like I talked about, there's a crawler or a spider that pulls down content, and then you gotta index the content. Well, before you index the content, you gotta get the content out. You gotta get the text. You gotta get the the metadata, which is just information like who's the author of this content, when was it written, uh, you know. So what this software is trying to do is, say, go to a website, grab a, for instance, a PDF, and dive into that PDF and tell you what the information in there is, which is which is a really challenging problem. Yeah, it was challenging then, and it's, it's still challenging today, and that is exactly what it is. And so, yeah, that's a parser. And so my contribution was one of those uh, for the really simple syndication format, the newsfeed format back then. And so I contributed that to Nudge. That was my final project in the search engines class. And so just going through that process, being involved with the, you know, a lot of senior developers, I mean, um, at the time, just, you know, working with these people and learning from them on how to develop software was a big deal for me. Talking about the people that you were learning for from being a huge influences on you, um, can can you think of a specific person that was a that sticks out as being one of the most important people in your life, and, and why was he or she so impactful? Um, I, I'm interested in in these mentors and how they they helped you define your trajectory. Uh, was there an individual who stuck out, or some maybe even a particular moment? that helped you decide as a USC student who had done some of these amazing things with software that, you know, what was going to be your trajectory through life? Yeah, one of, one of the early mentors on Nudge for me uh, was a guy, Jerome Charon, uh, who was a Frenchman. Okay. And he was trying to take uh, Nudge and to make the French Nudge. He called it French. Jerome, yeah, Jerome would take time and review my code and, and help me out and help me get it ready, you know, because one of the things they taught me early on that, you know, they just, they don't teach you in school or things like that is working on a bigger team, building code together and the little things that matter to people so that they don't get annoyed with you for the little things. And then when the bigger things come along, it's a problem, you know, so just, just little things like that that people like Jerome would, would help me out with. That's amazing. 
it, it, it's so interesting, and yeah. you do a good job of of relating it to what people can to understand. I one of the one of the things that that fascinates me most about about this is the parallel, kind of the analogy to what each of us are dealing with every day now. It's just kind of this information overload. You know, there's this information overload in terms of content on the web, and that's what you develop these tools to manage. But each of us are kind of developing these same tools in our own minds about how we manage all the information that is now available to us. I'm curious, do you did your development of these tools, these these very technical software tools, affect how you manage information in your own daily life and and how do you how do you address the information deluge in your own life yeah it's, it's funny uh i have a i have a very simple example of how it's even changed things that i do um you know when i, when I get up in the morning and i make uh you know coffee or i make the kids uh like chocolate milk you know, or I do the dog food, or I grind the coffee beans, or things like that. I just, I don't know, it's just weird. I've got this habit now of trying to figure out what things can be done in parallel. <laughs> you know, so, so there's not a wait state, you know, like, so I'll grind the coffee and make sure that the microwave is running at the same time. Right. You know, just, parallel processes, you know, yeah. Parallel processing, and it's dumb, you know, but a lot, it's just a simple example of where some of those things have kind of affected, you know, my life. But no, no. Data, you know, in terms of like data or thinking about how to organize it or whatever, you know, and we can talk about this more later, but the gist of it that I was going with before was that Jerome and I were more interested, you know, and it wasn't just I, he and I eventually put many, many people in the content, how to get the text out, you know, what to do with the metadata and all that, how to organize that, that, um, that, really became kind of, I think, probably what I'm more known for and what, you know, is more of my interest in developing a very similar capability technology called Tika for that, which we can talk about later. But given that, um, that, uh, you know, how does that influence my daily life and all that, it actually makes me, in a way, a little more unstructured because, I mean, with hmm. data and things like that, because, you know, many people with data, they're, you know, they think the panacea answer to data nowadays is it's all got to be in a single format or, you know, it's all going to be represented the same way. But, you know, human nature, you know, people, the way, the, the rate that people create new different types of data or formats and things like that, I just, I just don't think that that's tractable. And so because of that, um, you know, I tell people, store the data how you want it. You know, there needs to be a a way or an interpreter or a babble fish, if you will, you know, to get the basic stuff out. For those, for those who haven't seen A Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, you're going to have to explain the babble fish. Yeah, so the babble fish is an analogy to the Hitchhiker's Guide, from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. And the babble fish is, is something that you put to your ear and you can understand any language. You, know, you put the babble fish to your ear, and it doesn't matter what language someone speaks, you can understand it and translate to whatever your language is. And so, you know, the analogy for that with data for me, which eventually became this, this project that also spun out of Nudge, and that sort of picked up my, my life's work and my passion, has been this project called Tika, which is sort of the digital embodiment of that. And that's you know, T I K A. Yeah, it's a project that. 
that analogy it's it's uh it it really does explain what it does it, it, the example the application that i think is that everyone can understand is that tika was used as the primary res- resource for examining the panama papers these these are 11 and a half million leaked documents and so the, the that amount of information no one's going through hand by hand and gleaning information from that Tika was used to examine all of those all all of those data, uh, and so it's it's just been this glowing example, and that's just one small application that Tika has been used for. But it's been an, an incredible service that that uh, you were able to to put together. Yeah, you know, I appreciate that, Ryan. And um, there were many people that worked on Tika. In fact, nowadays, you know, I'm I'm so little a part of the project, but you know, my little small passion that I, I still do is I, del- I develop a particular um, small Python library that makes Tika available to people who want to program in the Python programming language because Tika is written in the Java programming language because as was most things at the time that were enterprise software, that's kind of what we were all using. So Chris, one thing that's clear, you know, you have this devotion and you know you've been a, a a thought leader and a pioneer of open source but if you look across your activities around 2012 i would say you start to see a term appear that i think is a trend across society and that term is data science and i was wondering why did that start why did that appear then what is your definition of data science and and how does it how does it relate to your trajectory? Where does data science fit into that? Uh, First off, that's great. And you've done your homework. And and it's right around the time, you know, that that really started becoming popular. Um, In my mind, it came from the commercial industry. You know, it came from the DJ 
leaders of the world, the Hillary Masons, the people that were out there in the industry that were sort of dealing with the stuff that you talk about, the day-to-day luge, you know, and all of that. But they were they were dealing with it in a way, in my opinion, without having necessarily the focus or the background on the engineering of, you know, software systems or large distributed systems from that, you know, perspective. A lot of these folks that were dealing with all of this data, I mean, were people like DJ, I'll tell you this, you know, with a big background in stats and math, you know, or, but not necessarily software systems, right? Stats and math or like crunching the data and thinking about it, but not necessarily like how do we put the data together or put it into a system or things like that. And what you also saw around that time, you know, and this, frustrated, I think, academics who felt like they had worked in databases and things like that forever, um, you know, including one who was the guy who made uh, Verica and Postgres and things like that, who wrote a very negative article on this subject at the time, um, which was no sequel, right? You saw the, you know, you saw the people who were kind of, again, who had this math and stats background and things like that, who were like, you know, how do, how do we store the data? But taking more of like a greenfield approach to I.e., there's nothing there already that I have to leverage. I could just start from nothing. A green field? Just that, you know, you mean that there was an empty landscape? An empty landscape and design, exactly. You know, green field is a common term in in any type of design, architectural design, software design, things like that. It just means you don't necessarily, you're not necessarily forced to build on something in the past. You can just start fresh if you wanted. So data science to them was... The practice of applying, you know, methodologies for managing, accessing, storing the data, but then beyond that, not stopping there, coupling the analytics, you know, with that, coupling the ways that you think about, you know, how to, re- you know, how to how to run algorithms over the data to do things in an efficient manner. Yeah, what, so it's the so full data lifecycle. Oh, I'm sorry. The full data. No, yeah, I mean, that's a great way to explain it. The whole data lifecycle is, you know, and not just running the algorithms haphazardly, because math and stats and all those things were kind of at the core of it, it was interpretability of the data. You know, like, you know, terminology that I would guarantee you would be scary and you wouldn't really know with people with my background at the time who are just more pure computer science and systems, when the math stats quote data scientists, you know, at the time who are really leading the definition, would talk about things like dimensionality reduction or data interpretability or imputing things from the data, you would sit there and be like, what? (laughs) What does that mean? You know, because, I mean, I know how to do data and systems and things like that, but what, what, what exactly are they talking about? Well, that was the approach from first principles that they were coming after data science with. And so you coupled and you married the people who, again, were these like math staff people with the systems people and the data people. And then at the same time as well, the boon of open source and the fact that, you know, SQL and all of these things were happening, that to me was data science. Again, it was driven in commercial industry because the acceleration from like I would say 2008 to 2012 of reimagining the way data is stored and then moving away from like exotic black box data warehouse systems to more big data open source Hadoop and other ecosystems. 
be the math people or you know the staff people who would go off either into academia or other places to come into that environment and then say, oh, we've got the data, it's all matched up together. What do we do with it? You know, and how do we use these open capabilities to kind of do that? So it's like it was the heart of all of those things kind of mashed together. And so then data science was really that at the time. And I can tell you as someone who is a data scientist, you know, now and I would call myself a complete data scientist. A, a complete? You, you would call yourself a yeah. complete data scientist? Is that what you said? I did. And I'll tell you the reason for that. The reason I would call myself a complete data scientist is that I wholeheartedly admit at the time in 2012 or all of that, I was always good at math. But, you know, I certainly did not use it in my day to day life. You know, because I wasn't on the side of, I was more on the side of how do we engineer all of the things that handle data which has some limited math and other elements in it, but I wasn't on the other side. And, and this isn't just in data, it's science too, like you guys, like your background, you know, for those, you know, I don't know, Brian talked about himself on your, your podcast, but you know, I mean, your background is in, you know, atmospheric science and things like that. So by its very definition, you are using math all the time, you know, from that. You're thinking about data interpretability, you're thinking about, how to impute things and what so so taking a very scientific perspective. And so, you know, what what I did, you know, because that I was seeing that sort of trend and whatever at the time is I spent the last many years relearning some of the things like that, you know, both in practice and in books and things like that. And I feel, you know, and I, even to this day I'm reading books, you know, to try and to try and get better because I feel like to be complete and not just somebody who was part of the data wrangling crew or, you know, data processing crew and all of that or building these open systems. I wanted to be complete and understand too both sides of that. That's such an important point that I think should res or could resonate across any, anybody's profession or life in, in just that I think too little, too infrequently are the, inefficiencies or the the incapabilities within ourselves kind of identified and worked on i think that people opt to work on and think about and do what they're good at uh but i think what makes you unique and and kind of i think speaks to how you're able to see the trends is that you recognize where you have an inefficiency or an incapability and you work on that and i think that that is a is a a broader truth and one of the ways that uh, that people can take a lesson away from that. Have you specifically throughout your life kind of tried to find the things that you felt less equipped to work on and and focused on those things? Eventually. <laughs> you know, I, mean, yeah, I would say yes, but I'm not as good at recognizing them to start. You know, it's easy in hindsight to be like, here's what happened in 2012, but I can tell you, it, it just, it wasn't until it hit me in the mouth in a few places, you know, and it really impacted just my ability to understand what was going on. Right. Um, that I just, I mean, so I, mean, it, it, I can make myself look good and not tell you that, but I'll just be honest is that it doesn't always hit me at first, but when it does hit me, I can sure tell you I commit to it. Yeah. And, and do work on that. So. And uh, how do you, 
recognize, how do you get that, get to that point where it's in your face? Do you rapidly experiment with new things? Are you trying to do specific activities that kind of push you to the limit or how do you, how do you interact with that? Oh yeah. I'm very empirical. Uh, learn by example. Okay. I would say I'm more, I've always been that way and uh, I have a ton of interest and, you know, and like you already said, and, and you know, no, and, you know, there's no doubt. Um, and so because of that, I'm just always, you know, either, and this is how it all relates together. I'm going to tie this back. That's going to be the theme of it. You ask me how all this stuff tied together. How do we make it work? So, you know, after I graduated from SC, I was still working at JPL. And my old advisor, an amazing person, Dr. Nino Medvedevich at the USC, and he's still there. He was the guy who taught me that writing was awesome and doing research was awesome, and I, was, I could be decent at it. Um, he told me in 2007 or 2008, I can't remember, um, that his class of 150 students was too big and would do what I want to teach. You know, he wants to split his class, and when I take a section of it, he taught a class on software architecture, the graduate class, and I was like, sure. And that was my intro into teaching, and fast forward, you know, I ended up teaching many classes at SC. I taught that, I eventually taught search engines, I designed a new class uh, in um, content detection and analysis, and then I, I was slated to teach an informatics class this past uh, semester, but I ended up not, I didn't have enough registration, but, um, you know, in doing all of that stuff, in teaching and whatever, as a professor, you have to design project, projects that not only, you know, teach the kids about, you know, what theory or, you know, applied or systems thing they're, they're trying to do. But my goal was always, and, and it sticks out, I remember the teachers who were boring and teaching material from 20 years ago when the classes were excruciating in some cases. And so for me, I always, I, I'm like, I work at JPL. I should be able to figure something out here, you know, for them to, to learn or, you know, to do it on a practical problem that would be very interesting to them. So I spent a lot of time just working on either, you know, how can I turn this problem at JPL into something that you can give students. I have a lot of other interests. It might not even be JPL. I, you know, do work with other people, like you noted, and different open source companies or things like that, and I see their problems. And so then I think about, hmm, I'm always thinking, how can this be a cool student problem, or, you know, and, and what type of data do we need, and, you know, how would we do this? And then I spend a lot of just, you know, not copious amounts, because I don't have it anymore, but my off time going out and trying it myself. And if I, you know, I have a rule, if I can't do it, you know, I'm not going to give it to them. Right. I have to do it first, you know, and if I try and whatever, and I'm hanging along the way, right, and I discover a lot about what my deficiencies are. Right. You know, and how to, how to address them. So there you go, I'm tied it together. I love that. I love that sentiment that you would not give it to or trust someone else with it if you could not do it or you didn't understand it yourself, I think that's a really important thing. And uh, I think it speaks to, to you as a person, Chris. Um, not There's there's few and becoming less, less of, I think, those kinds of approaches and mentalities in society. And uh, it, it's something that I've always, I've always enjoyed about you and, and learned from you as well. I appreciate it. You're making me uh, blush visually here. <laughs> well, Chris, I want to be respectful of your time, and I know that uh, we've only got a few minutes here, so I want to maybe take this opportunity to transition to the last part of the show, which is where I ask 
a series of lightning questions um, for you to kind of respond in, in a short form um, that I like to ask every guest. So are you ready for the lightning round? Sure, and it's lightning. All right, let's do it. The question, the first question, what is one book that you feel has impacted you unlike anyone else? Uh, One Minute Manager. It was given to me by my boss, the CTO at JPL, Tom Clarkson. Fantastic book. Teaches you how to be a manager, let go of things, and make other of yourself, other copies. And uh, I hand it out to everybody nowadays. Fantastic. I'll have to do that. The One Minute Manager. Okay. Number two. What passion outside of your own field has most importantly helped set your trajectory? Um, uh, uh, that's interesting. Well, it's a lightning round. So I'm going to say my, my field was computer science and I studied computers. I know even though I work at, you know, JPL, for me, you know, the passion even before then, you know, especially after is, is space and, and things like that. And, and so for me, you know, the reason that I remain in JPL, I can work anywhere. And people talk about this. I've talked to them about it. The reason I remain in JPL is I love space. I love Mars. I love the Earth. And, you, know, I love, you know, all of those things excite me. And there's no other place that you can do cool computer science stuff and work on space. So, yeah, there you go. I love that. And I can... Uh personally resonate with that so the third question what is making your heart sing right now oh um that's a a tough one uh probably probably i would say just watching my kids grow up and uh you know you know how humans learn and do it and just their sensitivity and all of the amazing things about having children that's great, Chris. Love that. And then the final question. What is one thing that you truly and fully screwed up? Oh, one thing? <laughs> I, can think of, I can think of a lot of them. Um, okay, here you go. I was on a call for a consulting that I do for a company, which I'll name. And it was a long, overrunning call. Uh, you know, it's supposed to go for 30 minutes. It was like an hour and 15 minutes into it. And it was a little older days of cell phones. And um, I was on my cell phone, you know, in the car, uh, in, I, I think on Bluetooth, you know, or whatever. I want to say it, but I'm pretty sure it was on Bluetooth. But um, my wife called in, and I, uh, I picked up, uh, you know, but I accidentally... I didn't know that I accidentally, when I picked up, joined the call to <laughs> the main conference call that I was on. And, you know, I don't want you to have to bleep me or whatever, but I said, this effing call is going way too long. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, it's not going to be, you know, I'm not going to be home on time or you know, whatever. And, you know, or it's just, I'm not off the call. And, uh, and then, well, it's like, okay, but, you know, bye. And then it returned you know, to the call, and I was still in the same call. <laughs> the no. thing. And then the CEO of the company, like, being a professional that she was, she was like, you know, maybe we've all been on the phone for too long. She's like, we'll just continue this later. And I never <laughs> <came off> the call. <laughs> 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 and to this day, I still keep in touch with her. 
it was going to well this time, so. That's yeah, funny. Yeah, exactly. So either that's either a screw up or a whole new way to end a, a meeting. We all have that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, Chris, this has been really enjoyable. As always, I, I really gain a lot of energy from talking with you. Um, and just in parting, where can people find you online? Where do you like to be followed? Is it Twitter? Is it somewhere else? I think the easiest way to find me online is on Twitter. And then my name has, you know, the unique name is only one of me. It's just Chris Matman is my handle. But I have two of every letter in my last name. Two N's, two A's, two T's, two X. If you follow that, you can find me. And then, um, you know, there are other links to, you know, page at USD. I actually barely want to update as much anymore. But Twitter is probably the best way. Great. I will uh, post those in the show notes. And everyone can um, can take advantage of the wealth of knowledge that you have, Chris. It's uh, it's been a, been a pleasure of mine. So thank you very much, Chris. And looking forward to talking with you again soon. Feeling is mutual, Ryan. Great. Uh, thanks for having me on your show. Great. Thanks, Chris. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Origins. If you're enjoying this podcast and it's in some way speaking to you. Share it with someone that you think it may resonate with as well. I hope you sit with these ideas and that they come back to you over the coming weeks. If you're enjoying this, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and drop us a line on Twitter, Instagram, or our website. I would love to hear from you, hear your ideas, thoughts on guests, feedback, questions, anything that you have on your mind. Love to interact. Um, So pay attention to the show notes for this episode. I'll post Chris Matman's Five Cut Fridays playlist on there as well. So thank you very much, and we will be back shortly.